0: authors over 50 writing in life's sweetest third authors over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication writing after 50 is a whole story on its own so let's skip to life's sweetest third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish welcome i'm julia daly your host and i invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life we've seen award list for under 30 or under 40 but i've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today has been writing novels since she was four years old, although she was sidetracked for several decades by journalism. During that award-winning career, she wrote eight nonfiction books, mainly about consumer activism, the drug industry, and the financial world. She's been an editor or regular contributor for the New York Times, Business Week, fortune and writes book reviews for the new york journal of books but she never abandoned her first true love fiction her debut novel the heirs was published in 2018 by stephen f austin state university press her latest book I Meant to Tell You has been named a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Awards and the Sarton Award in Contemporary Fiction. At home in Brooklyn, New York, she is always working on her next novel. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Fran Hawthorne.
1: Oh, and thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Fran, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is what took you so long to write your first book?
1: Well, there's two parts, I guess, to the answer. The nonfiction, I mean, I was, as you've mentioned, spending my career, you know, starting in college, I was writing. I was writing for my college paper for dailies, weeklies, monthlies, you know, some of them you've mentioned. I was going to Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. and Switzerland. So, and, you know, every time I got tired, I got a different job. Um, I was earning my living writing, which is what I was wanted to do. Um and then there came a time when you know happens to a lot of journalists where you're tired of that short deadline grind and you want to dig deeper. And so the first book, the first nonfiction book was a kind of normal progression. I mean, some people go straight into nonfiction books, but it it just I guess I needed to hone my skills and learn, you know. Um the first novel. In a way, of course, my first novel I wrote when I was four. But if we don't count that, um, it was my first nonfiction book or all my nonfiction writing that delayed me, you know, um, because there I was writing every day and telling myself, oh, I'm writing. I'm writing. I'll get to the fiction, you know, uh, later, you know, but I'm tired. I write all day. I need a break. You know, all those We can all come up with excuses. That's why we're writers over 50, because. We come up with excuses. Um, and, you know, I would start, now I even finished some first drafts of novels. I did write novels all during all those years, but um, just never got them in shape to, to publish. Um, you know, so it was really, like I said, my other writing that delayed me.
0: Well, then you made the switch to fiction. Yeah. And then you wrote the first novel, the debut novel. And how did you decide to go with the University Press?
1: And by the way, it's a university in Texas. It's your yes. Name. Um, well, um, what happened was I did have a nonfiction agent, and I told her, "Listen, I'm I'm going to try my lifelong, you know, dream. I'm going to switch to fiction." And she said, "Oh, she'd been trying to get into fiction." So I started with her. Well, it was it seemed wonderful. I have an agent, um, and she she came up with some really good ideas on how to fix the book. There are two problems. One is I was new and she was new, which meant she didn't have the contacts. You know, she, like all agents do, she sent it out to the big names and their imprints and, you know, it's easier in everything in life, right? If You've been doing it a while you've networked and she didn't have the fiction contacts. Also she and I both missed a major problem um, with the novel. And, And so, well, Needless to say, those imprints and big houses either ignored it or rejected it. And then I went to, I hired a developmental editor and who read it over and said to me, Fran, this book has no flaw. And I said, oh, (laughs) it has a great setup. It has great writing. And like neither my agent or I really realized (laughs) that no wonder all those publishers rejected it. So um, I redid it. And then, now I had been told and since then, I have been told the opposite. But what I was told back then was that if an agent from a reputable agency, which mine was, you know, goes to a big house and that an editor at that big house rejects it, no agent will take it on again to the big houses. And since all the big houses have been tried, and that's kind of all the agents do, so I said, okay, then I'm going to small publishers, and I, you know, sent it out. You know, I don't want to say. <laughs> I don't lost track. Um, well, first I sent out the bad version and then I, after I rewrote it, resend it, send it to new places. Um, and so I was thrilled um, indeed that um, Stephen F. Austin, State University Press, which is a traditional pr- publisher, a university publisher, published first The Heirs and then last fall published my second novel, I Meant to Tell You.
0: Well, it's very prestigious to have a university press, I think, and there's so many options for us these days. People can go with small presses. They can go for the big houses if they want to, but those of us after the age of 50 are usually wanting a little quicker process.
1: Yes, there is that. Absolutely. Um, and also, um, depress people right off the bat, but, um, Again, what you hear, you know, I can I don't know that there's been any scientific surveys, but what you hear is that agents. It's harder to get an agent if you're over fifty, because understandably, an agent isn't publishing one book. An agent wants a relationship, a long-term relationship. An agent puts a lot of time into getting to know the author. Read, and you know, my agents did. They read right over my book. They you know, gave suggestions. Um, And they look at us over 50 and look at how many books do we have left in us? And they say, nope, (laughs) not enough time for a payback.
0: Well, that's their loss because I'm interviewing people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they're quite prolific and they're writing beautiful work.
1: Yes, 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 absolutely. Understandably, that's how they feel. But thank you for saying that because I'd like to think my work is good. And I will... I will give a bit of inspiration to counter my downer. Um, i my friend, Judy Alter in Texas. Awesome. Um, she's 85 and just came out with her umpteenth novel this spring. You know, she's been writing for books for like 40 years. Uh, so, you know, we're out there.
0: And the work is so much richer. I think we've had so many more life experiences and and the, the work is just, very, very good. How did writing that first novel change your process of writing? Because you followed it pretty quickly with another book.
1: Oh, interesting question. Um, Because writing a novel is very, very different from nonfiction, which is what I had done. So I did have to learn to change. Um, but from novel number one, The Heirs, to novel number two, I meant to tell you, to the one I've just finished, um, Wish me luck. Um, uh, well, what I my process didn't change in terms of how I set about to write, how I write my first draft, um, but I did learn. Um, well, I learned a lot about marketing, which we can get to. But I also learned um, that the value of hiring, like a developmental editor, a writing coach. Whenever you know different terms are used. Um, in the first novel, I went to writing groups and workshops and we read each other's work. And that was great. And that has one set of values. But I didn't realize until I just told you that story, I really need a professional to read the whole thing and look at it with a different set of eyes than my fellow writers do than I do. Um, Some people have their spouses read. That's great, but it's, again, very different. Um, You know, so uh, that's one process I realized with the second novel, you know. Um I I wrote the first draft. I mean this is how I do it. I write the first draft and I as a former journalist, you know, I make notes and all the research I need to do. Then I go back and do the research. And in the process of putting that research in, I am inevitably rewriting because there are scenes, facts, whatever that I just got wrong. Right, so then I do a revision. Then at that point, then I hire an editor I may go to workshops as well. Um, and so that was that extra step that I realized that I really needed. So that is a major thing that changed.
0: Well, you mentioned our nemesis, marketing and publicity, you know, writers like to write, we don't like to market and promote ourselves. So tell us about any publicity that you've found that's worked for you.
1: Yeah, I don't know well, worked. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, Yeah, some of the things I've learned writing and trying to market a novel with a small press in 2018, which was my first novel, is not at all like writing a nonfiction book with a larger press in, you know, 2008, 2010. No, Um, A lot has changed. And then with my new novel, which I meant to tell you, COVID changed things again. Um, I mean, back, so I've learned... Social media, but with my nonfiction, social media was not a factor. Um, I, there are fewer bookstore readings. Um, another thing I've learned is hire a publicist. You know, um, they can cost. I interviewed 12 publicists. Again, I didn't have one for my first novel. I did have one for I Meant to Tell You, my new novel. I interviewed 12 different publicists for that. Um, they range in price from a couple thousand to 25,000. And no, I did not hire anyone for Uh, $25,000. But, um, you know, but maybe you can afford folks listening, watching can afford a few thousand. If you can, oh, do it, do it, do it. They know outlets that I had no idea. Places that want guest blog posts, podcasts. I mean, those are the things. Another thing and you don't need a publicist for this, you can do it on your own hire what's called a bookstagrammer they cost maybe 300 or 500 dollars um and and well this is one person who was in charge of bookstagrammers at book tours and these are book influencers on instagram who will read and post about your book and that's thousands more followers you know um so these are things i had no idea that i learned um so yeah marketing i mean some people love it um i don't <laughs> you know uh, I do love talking. It's so much fun to talk with you. And I enjoy writing blog posts, uh, but I don't like seeking them out, finding them, researching them, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's some advice for sure. Find yourself some grammars and, um, or a, you know, a bookstagram, an organizer. Um, if you can hire a publicist, or if you can't afford that research the podcasts and the, you know, like this one and the, um, you know, uh, writers, you know, um, uh, blogs and, you know, they shouldn't charge you for for doing it. They don't pay you either, but, you know, you get out there. Mm -hmm. And bookstores, um, don't feel bad if you don't get invited to talks at bookstores. They're doing it less and less, even before COVID and now post-COVID even less. On the other hand, um, if you have, sort of obvious niche look think about organizations with with the heirs it, it, it was a second generation holocaust story so i did get invited by a lot of J, jewish community centers and synagogues with i meant to tell you it's less obvious uh, unfortunately for me but again so think beyond the bookstore
0: Well, are there any specific books or seminars or writing retreats or groups that you can share that improved your writing journey especially for fiction
1: yeah oh I love going to workshops and, and retreats and where you live for a week with otherwise oh yeah isn't that wonderful I mean you you're getting I mean I'm a journalist right and and I've spent a week at, at breadloaf and I didn't look at a single newspaper I had no idea what was happening in the world Oh me um anyway so um, again it's a, it's a week of time and it's money so not everyone can do that um but I I do recommend it if you can, just the the inspiration of being around writers. And if not, hopefully you can manage, um, maybe a local college or something will do, you know, writer's workshops, you meet once a week for two or three hours and you critique each other's work. Um, I think just, again, it's inspiring just to talk to other writers. Um, With those weekly workshops, the quality, I mean, it really depends on the quality of the writer Who's leaving it? With the seminars you go to, the the ones that you go to, um, honestly, I go there more for the inspiration and the living. There, I've taken you know uh, classes. I've been critiqued by writers. You know, um, I sound weird, but uh, the quality I think of of the writing advice is less important to me for those. And so, what did I go to? I've been. I'm going to my fourth in January. Um, well, we're over 50. Most of us don't have little kids at home. That's yeah. already a bit of freedom. If we have our health, you know, um, some of us are taking care of aging parents and we can't take off a week. Um, but I went to Bread Loaf, as I mentioned, in Vermont. I went to Iowa. I went to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. That was fun. And then in January, I'm going to Key West in Florida. So um, yeah, sometimes you get great locations too. <laughs>
0: Yes. And I, I do love a writing retreat because you can sometimes take a class in the morning, then meet for lunch, and then go write furiously all afternoon. And you don't have to worry about walking the dogs or fixing dinner or anything. So it's, it's a great, great time.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a writer's vacation because we're going someplace, as you said, you don't have to do the dishes, maybe a beautiful locale, and we're writing. For us, that's a vacation, right? It really is.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about the passage you brought to share today and then read from your book so we
1: can hear your tone and voice. Thank you. Um, I usually read the opening couple of pages, but I thought I'm going to try something different with you. For one thing, it's a little longer than you'd probably want. Also, I wanted something that was fresh for me. Um, and I it had to be something that has no spoilers. Obviously, early enough in the book that would have no spoilers, but hopefully to intrigue you with a little bit of plot. And as you said, to showcase. So I needed something that had both dialogue and, uh, you know, some narrative. Um, So this is toward the end of chapter four. And um, just to set the scene a little. Miranda, who is the protagonist, is walking with her friend, Brenda, in Washington, D.C., where they work and live. Um, they're talking about their mutual friend, Ronit. Ronit is from Israel. And as you already know from the prologue, um, some years back, Miranda was driving Ronit and her daughter to the airport and to go to Israel and they were arrested for kidnapping. See, that's the part I usually read. But now that I've told you that, um, so now, um, and Miranda are on the street. I was thinking, Miranda said carefully. I could try to contact Ronit. The other people on the crosswalk and the sidewalk were hurrying in both directions, pushing past Brenda and Miranda. Why, Brenda asked. Just to, you know, talk, get her advice. No one else can really understand what happened that night. Miranda's hat had ridden back up on her head and she tugged it down again over her raw, cold ears. Didn't you already try writing to her 10 times and you never heard back? Only twice. And the birthday presents you sent to her daughter? She never thanked you. Oh, I don't know if they ever got any of the presents or letters. I might have the wrong address for Ronit's parents. You sent the presents all the way to Israel, Brenda demanded. Well, where else am I supposed to send them? Ronit's lawyer didn't know where she'd moved. I figured Ronit's parents could ship them to her. For a moment, Brenda was silent. Then she said quietly, leave them alone, Miranda, like Ronit asked you to. But Brenda hadn't known Ronit as well as Miranda had back in their days together. Stumbling on the path during their run in Rock Creek Park when Miranda was sure she twisted her ankle and they must've been at least a mile from any inhabited streets. Ronit immediately crouched and told Miranda to climb onto her back and she insisted Even when Miranda said it wouldn't work, she would carry Miranda piggyback, back to civilization. Of course, she could barely go four paces. She was taller than Miranda, but just as scrawny. In the end, they walked the whole mile or whatever, Miranda leaning against Ronit, baby step by baby step in the twilight. It took them over an hour to reach a little deli because that was what friends did for each other. When Miranda Isaac's fiance, Russ Steinman, is being vetted for his dream job in the US attorney's office. The couple joke about whether Miranda's parents' history as anti-war activists in the 60s might jeopardize Russ's security clearance. But as it turns out, the real threat emerges after Russ's future employer discovers that Miranda was arrested for felony kidnapping seven years earlier, an arrest she'd never bothered to tell Russ about.
0: That's great.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So there's yeah there's friendship as we can see. There's romance in terms of it. There's kidnapping. There's politics. Well, sixties, nineteen sixties politics. Um. So yeah, it's a great beach really. Well, it depends what you read on the beach. When I was a teenager in high school, I'm so weird. Uh, I decided to spend this. We lived in California, and I could walk to the beach. And I spent the summer. I read. Um, I read War and Peace, and I read The Brothers Karamazov. I said, my beach reads, because I had all summer.
0: Well, um, you know, my book club chose War and Peace for our read this summer. We've split it into thirds, and I'm on the last third. So um, I, th- I said today an editor would have divided that into a series into. <laughs> three-part series because it's so long it was 61 hours on the audio
1: oh my gosh I can't imagine I could imagine reading for 61 hours more than I can imagine listening oh
0: well it's difficult to keep all those Russian princes and princesses names straight when you're just listening
1: yes did you take notes
0: I had to yes
1: yeah. so I know it's hard enough I think when I and your other guests read aloud, um, you know, to distinguish the dialogue from the narrative and stuff. So um, anyway, well.
0: What genre do you normally read? Do you read nonfiction or do you read fiction?
1: Well, I belong to four book clubs because like I said, I'm crazy. Um, And three of them are fiction and one of them is nonfiction. Um, I do read mostly fiction. For one thing I learned from it, oh my, I mean, I'll just give you a short example. Um, For one of my book clubs, we're reading Ann Patchett's newest book, Tom Lake. And as I'm reading, I'm noticing her descriptions and I'm saying, I just think in the one, the book I just finished writing, I just need a tad more, a few more subtle touches because description is my weakness. And I went back and pulled up, you know, on my laptop, I pulled up the file and there are certain spots. And I, anyway inspired by Anne Patchett. I went and added a few more touches of descriptions of people. So I learned from fiction. Um and I love fiction. I mean if I write it I love reading it right uh, but I I do like nonfiction on certain topics. Um history I'm a, I'm a volunteer at um the New York Historical Society which is a museum here. So I love history. I love politics um you know science there's so much it, it's' so much fascinating stuff going on. On the other hand, um, I'm not really a nature person, so I wouldn't read books about, you know nature, for example. So with nonfiction, well, with fiction too, they both depend on the genre genre and fiction is mostly, you know, literary, contemporary women's or historical. um, I'm not a sci-fi or a fantasy person. Oh, yeah so there's a few anyway.
0: I've interviewed quite a few um, writers who've come from the journalism world, and they expressed to me that it was difficult for them to leave, you know, just the facts and being very efficient in their writing, and to try to make more flowery language, you know, to stretch out those descriptions. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I hope you mean flowery. I hope not flowery. But you're right. I did. I absolutely had to learn to add in journalism. You're always cutting. And my first drafts are always way too short and I had to learn to add in without doing the dreaded tell, right? You have to show, not tell, but to add in more explanation more, more things that show the person's personality or, or description. You're absolutely right.
0: Well, what does writing success look like to you personally?
1: I have to confess being published. I mean, I wish I could sit there and say, knowing I've turned out, knowing I've written a good piece of work, finishing a novel. Well, I don't trust my own judgment on what's good or not. So, you know, um, that's not success. And finishing a novel, a draft, is a wonderful feeling, but it's never finished. (laughs) So I have to since I've, I've dreamed since I was four years old of having my novels published. So that to me is the Basic definition of success. Now, there are other types of success that would be wonderful to add on to that. You know, good sales, good reviews, awards, you know, and those, and I've had some of those, and those, believe me, I love them. <laughs> but um, the basic is, is being published.
0: I feel the same way. You know, it's a legacy for us to leave to our children and grandchildren that will always live in the world somewhere and i was thrilled when one of my granddaughters chose my book to read when they were given a, a assignment in her high school english class that she wanted to tell them that her grandmother had written a book so you know that that's what's special to me
1: that's beautiful yes that's so important that that i've left something that i when you hear from readers who like really loved a part were touched by a part when you've actually made a difference, you know, um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you were leaving a little piece of yourself in the world. You're absolutely, yeah.
0: Fran, as always, our last interview question is our writers over 50 are a unique set. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above?
1: Yeah. Well, I gave some advice already about the agents, I guess, but, um, I guess I would say, um, if you're 50 and above, I mean, that spans, hey, 50 years, maybe more. Um, so your situation can be different. You may still have kids at home. You may have parents who are dating care of, You may still be working a day job. You, but some things I think do make you very different from those in their 20s and 30s. You may have health issues that those in their 20s and 30s don't have. Um, you probably are freed of some obligations, however, that they don't have. Um so and you but you probably don't have the totally carefree situation that some of them may have. I mean, wherein um, you know, they may have saved up money, they may do gig work, they don't have a nine to five job, they don't have kids. You know. I think um in general, people over fifty our lives may have more complications. You know, everyone's special and you know we're all different. Um and so I what my point I'm getting at is I think we may need to set a schedule in ways that people with fewer responsibilities who are younger don't have. Um, so I think if you're in that situation where you have you know you're a sandwich generation with kids and parents and a day job and all that, um it may be, you know, you may have to work a little harder to find that time. Um, you know, not to mention you may start getting arthritis. In which case, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a great believer in turmeric. It's a, it's a spice. So anyway, that's my advice: schedule in turmeric.
0: I think that's very important advice for us today, and we're just so happy to have you here with us. You've written some beautiful work, and I know everyone's going to want to read those those books and and look forward to the one that's coming out next and we're happy to say that you're counted among our authors over 50.
1: Thank you so much for including me and for talking today.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after fifty at www.juliadaily. That's D A I L Y, like daily newspaper.com Until next time, keep reading and writing, and remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.